one and we are recording with mr michael vecchione on i was listening to one of our first episodes actually and i'm so embarrassed i think for the first like five times you and i talked i said vecchione and it's so cringeworthy it's vecchione not vecchione it's not like macaroni it's vecchione on Tuesday, May 2nd, 2023 at 4.39 p.m. Eastern Time. If you want to support the podcast, please click the little red button. That's local. Let's go get exclusive stuff where you can buy the merch and support the podcast. Those are all my original graphic designs. Mike's been on here oodles of times before, and we're talking about his most recent book, Fallen Angel, which I actually, if you are on the locals and you should be, you'll know that I mentioned it this morning, talking about how it's. I like it because it 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 gives you a target to put on something that otherwise doesn't have a target. The problem with guerrilla warfare is you can't find the insurgents versus a marching army. You have something to focus on. And what I like about fallen angel is it puts a face on the evil instead of just chaotic stabbings and rapes. It gives you a little more because once you have a target, you can focus on that target. And I really, and then to get into a religious sense, I think you start d- digging deeper and asking God for guidance and, you don't feel so alone. You don't feel so chaotic. You start to look at it as as the literal devil and go, and it, it, it's a worthwhile fight. But uh, I'll shut up. And guys, in the description is the link to the book. I cannot recommend it enough. I don't get paid to say that. I don't have to say that. I don't even have to interview Mike. I keep having him back on because I genuinely like him. And I genuinely think he's a good author. Mike, would you please introduce yourselves to everybody? Yes, and thank you for the kind words, Tom. Yes, I sir. appreciate it. Yes, sir. The um, My name is Michael Vecchione, and um, and before I started to um, to write books in earnest and uh, as part of what I did for do for a living and do to pass my time. Now, I was the I was an I'm an attorney and I was a prosecutor for probably 30 years or more. And um, all of them in the Brooklyn District Attorney's Office. And when I left the office, I was chief of the rackets division, which uh, gave me a lot of fodder for uh, for the stories that um, I have now put down on paper. <clears throat> I've done several. Tom has had me on and has been kind enough to <clears throat> to tout the books that I've done, but uh, but that's not the end, Tom. I have I just actually finished volume two, yeah. or book two of Fallen Angel. I turned it in last week, actually. And um, well, you were hopping be... on the phone at the end of our last podcast, right? Yes, that's exactly correct. I was, and um, and I turned it in. I finally got it in, and um, and and I'm really pleased with it. I'm really happy with it. You know, it, it that's a difficult thing to say. If an author tells you that he he loves what he's written, then he's a liar because yeah. nobody likes what they write. But yeah. I have to tell you that I I when I went back over this and I just finished the a real um, heavyweight editing process with a really good friend of mine who's a who's an English basically an English professor, and we. You know, he gives me his ideas about content as well as, you know, how the flow of the book and um, and grammar, of course, and spelling. And um, so we did a heavyweight, a really, really heavy uh, edit. And um, when I was done, I said, you know, that's not bad. I, I really liked it. And um, I have to tell you that it um, when I got to the end, I was very, very happy to press that button to send it into the publisher and say, uh, okay, show it to the world now. You know, that's that's the thing. So if things go well, it'll be out in time for beach reading, you know, for uh, for the summer. And um, and and once I get um, I get a little bit of time under my belt here, I'm going to start book three. I have a three book contract, so I'm going to I'm going to do book three. But um, and and as you know. I got to tell you one thing, and then I'll get to the, to the fallen angel. Um, when you just before we went on the air today, I was in the middle of doing a um, a story, a short story, a true crime short story that I had a case that I had done as a defense attorney, and and the reason that I've done it is because it was a, a real tragedy involving a woman who loved a husband who went away to the army and came back a completely different person and began to batter her beyond belief. I mean, every day, it was an everyday thing. And um, she finally kicked him out and, and he, he wouldn't just take no for an answer. He kept coming back and, and, and it ultimately ended in tragedy. I'm not going to spoil the, the ending, but she was a sculptress and uh, she had studied um, to, to do this. And she became very good at her, at her art. And um, as a result of this battering and as a result of the way that she took steps to stop it, um, she essentially destroyed her ability to 
to make a living and to to practice her art. And um, it was a heartbreaking story. One time, I have to tell you, I did a lot of cases in my career, and it's one that I will never, I'll never forget. And I'll just give you a little, this little tidbit before we get to Fallen Angel. I was called to represent her by um, the. It was called in Brooklyn, the 18B panel. It was a signed counsel plan for someone who couldn't afford to have an attorney. I volunteered my time for very, very low rates of, uh, of return, you know, in terms of, of retainer <clears throat> to represent her. And I got a call because I was on the homicide panel and she was charged with a homicide. And um, and I had to go to Kings County Hospital, which is a big city hospital here in, in New York. It's in Brooklyn. And it's... Um, and, and they were going to do the arraignment of her. She had been arrested the, the evening before and it was time for her to be arraigned. She needed an attorney and I was told to go to, uh, to the hospital to do the arraignment at her bedside. And when I walked in to her room, there was no one there. I, I couldn't believe what I was seeing in terms of, of <laughs> you expect someone to be able to, you know, look at you and talk to you and, and, and to say something that, gives you a sense that they're actually alive and in, in bed, maybe hurting, but mm -hmm. it was not the case. She was, she was, she looked like a mummy. Jesus. Um, she was, she was completely bandaged uh, all and she couldn't speak. It was a horrible experience. And then as I got to know her, this was the most peaceful, loving, um, talented woman that, that I had, that I had ever met. And, and it was a case that I, I, you know, I don't know where she is today. And I, when I started to write this story, I looked to see if I could find her because I really would like to put that as a coda on it. Um, I haven't found it yet, but I haven't given up. So, um, so that's what I was doing. And I, I hope that at, when I'm done and I have it, send it in and get it in, I'm going to publish it myself on, on mm -hmm. Amazon. It'll be an Amazon Kindle single, they call it. It costs 99 cents and, and you don't need the Amazon, you don't need a Kindle device. You can yeah. go on and, and read it at, on the app. I hope you have me back because I'd like to talk to you about it. I think it'll be, um, it's good. And it, and it's, it would be, you know, something that kind of uh, is pointed to a different or maybe some other parts of your audience, the, the, the ladies and women in the audience, you know, who, um, who maybe feel that uh, there's not someone out there who can tell their story and listen to, uh, to what they have to say, if they're suffering the kind of uh, horrific things that happened to this woman and, and, um, I, I think it's it's worthwhile. So well, we'll leave that on the shelf and I'll tell you when I'm done. And of course, cool, I'll send cool. it to you and you'll be able to read it and, and discuss it. So, OK, absolutely. But I mean, <clears throat> something like that, I would imagine probably gives a little more weight to you probably do. It causes you to look at certain crimes and go, I mean, this is pure evil. Right. And that probably oh, definitely. into something like definitely, falling definitely. Angel. Yeah. There is there. Yes, absolutely. I, there is a there, it's per, I would have been able to incorporate this story into one of the fallen angel volumes without any problem at all. And mm -hmm. and for your listeners and, and viewers who haven't heard it, fallen angel is the story of a of a prosecutor who was recruited by a secret government agency to to fight the devil who has come to Brooklyn and is responsible for um, horrific crimes designed to upset the good order of society and 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 peace that um you know in various parts of the borough and um and book two the devil's devil has you know has has gotten to the point of his the crimes that he has instigated are all with the point of essentially destroying families and if you destroy family life then society crumbles in my opinion and mm -hmm. um and that's what uh that's what book two is is all about so Hell yeah. Fallen Angel is um is the prosecutor. It's no secret is is modeled after the former chief of the Rackets Division in the Brooklyn DA's office, and uh, his name is Michael. His first name is his he's Michael Gioka, and I gave him that name because <clears throat> he's a he's a gambler. He's a risk taker. He's the kind of guy who is not afraid to take on a battle like this, and um, and was not afraid to kind of, you know, push the envelope, not necessarily criminally or illegally or, or you know, against his ethical bounds, but to, for instance, if, if there was a witness who was kind of, the kind of witness who one person or a jury might not like, but was very important for a case, 
there were lots of times his colleagues would say to him, you know, you're crazy. You can't call them. They'll, they'll never, they, they won't like him or like her. And it was, it was Gioka's position that, well, they don't have to like him. They have to believe him. And, and I will find a way to make sure that they believe him. That's, that's his kind of mm -hmm. his philosophy. And um, so that's why we called him. Uh, I call them Gioca because in Italian that means gamble or gambler, and it uh, and it and it's an easy. By the way, but it's an easy name to type too. It's that it's only five letters as opposed to Vecchione. If I could, yeah. I couldn't type that so many times. So I'm looking at it on my keyboard right now, it is, yeah, it is a little simple. It is. it is. It's very simple. So, um, so the last time we were here, we talked about the the case that that got Michael to the attention of um, of the agency or the secret government agency that that hire that ultimately hires him but he's recruited by an old friend of his um, who is a monsignor um, in the catholic church who was a an exorcist and given the fact that this is battle with the devil they uh, the agency where the whole idea of fighting satan uh, came about was through the exorcist, the office of exorcisms in the vatican so when they realized that it's <clears throat> things of this nature that they, they that fit a pattern that was happening in other parts of the world, was now fit in was now happening in Brooklyn. <clears throat> the agency hired um, uh, hired or recruited this Monsignor Monsignor Sal Romano, who had been an exorcist, was a Brooklyn native, knew the borough, and more importantly, knew a prosecutor who he had grown up with. Um, who they were altar boys together. They played ball together. They went on dates together. And the Michael Gioca character went one way to the to the law, and Sal Romano went the other way to to the Catholic Church. But now he's asked to come back, uh, Sal is, and and talk to his his buddy, and recruit him for this job of taking on the ultimate evil. And um, and the way that he he does it is by um, not telling them what they're doing. They kind of watch Michael do a case. He has a very difficult case that has been put in front of him. And um, and there are some twists and turns and things that don't make sense. And Michael, of course, at this point, doesn't understand why certain things happened and why witnesses didn't show up or witnesses are now changing who they were and what they are and, and things of that nature. That was a case that... This, the agency recognized was one that was instigated by Satan. So Michael gets the case and he handles it perfectly. And, uh, and after the case is over, he's recruited and he's asked to take over this, this position, take this job because it's necessary. And he, and he agrees. In the book, I think the character says that, you know, if I turned this down, my father would never speak to me again because he, he's a church goer. He goes to church every, and he, and his sons would. And my sons would call him a pussy. Yeah, no, yeah. I, I fucking love that line. <laughs> so, um, so we, so we, he gets, he gets past this one, this first case, and now what he has to do is he has to kind of, he has to work as Rackets Division Chief as well as the the guy in charge of this battle with the devil because this it has to be secret. The 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 world can't know that Satan has has is is out there doing the things that he's doing because the agency feels and the Vatican feels that this would create chaos. So everything has to be on a download. Um, so Michael uh, is the agency clears it with the district attorney who is Michael's boss, and they they tell him that he's being recruited for this super secret government work, and he they don't tell him what the nature of it is, and 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 of course. He's a politician, so he says, "Yeah, this is great because yeah. it looks good for me. One yeah. of my boys is, you know, yeah. so, yes, man, yeah." So, um, so there's, um, so so Michael does well, obviously, with the first case, and and um, and when he goes to the DA and and tells him that um, the DA calls him actually and says, "Listen, I just got this call from a former Attorney General in the United States, and they want you for this super secret organization, you know, for this." government project top secret and mike are you going to take it and and michael has already told them that he is and he tells the da yeah i'm going to take it so um he puts lets him stay as the chief of the rackets division so that that's his cover um but all of the work that michael does he has to do with detectives and agents 
who believe that he's the Rackets division chief, not the head of this or not the, the prosecutor in charge of fighting Satan. He never tells them that it's Satan behind these, these crimes. So in the second part of the book, case number two, he gets a call one day and it's, um, it's, it's the July, right after the July 4th holiday. And it turns out that um, on July 4th evening, a, an off-duty police officer um, is with his girlfriend and they visit there. They live in a, in a, in one of the, the neighborhoods that's heavy in crime in, in Brooklyn. And they, they, he has this, the, the cop is a young cop who grew up in the New York city housing projects, which is the, the public housing here in New York. And, um, and he has, he, as he grew up, he came to kind of admire the police officers who were stationed in and around the housing projects and who were to protecting the, the citizens, et cetera. And every day he would come home from school, there'd be one particular cop at his door and they'd have a discussion. And, and, and the detective, the cop, I call him Robbie Thomas. And, and he, um, he, uh, he likes, he gets to the point where he says, you know, I think this is what I'm going to do when I, mm -hmm. when I become, when I grow up, so to speak. And, um, and he does. And, when he's when he's when he graduates the police academy, he could go anywhere in the city. They could assign him to anywhere. He asked to go back to the housing project where yeah. he was where he was raised so that he could help and, and take care of the people who he says grew him up, so to speak, you know, mm -hmm. raised him. He became a he became a man because of these people. He was beloved, beloved. And in real life. He was beloved as well. And uh, he, I changed his name and I'm not going to get into his real name, sure. but just in the, in the book, he's called Robbie. Um, his father was a big Brooklyn Dodger fan and Jackie Robinson was his uh, one, his favorite, of course. And he he named his son. Uh, they called him Robbie after uh, after Robinson, Jackie Robinson. So. Um, so. He is you know he's he's loving loving life and people love him and they, he helps people out all the time and and he's off on july 4th and he he has this brand new motorcycle which picks up his girlfriend and before they head out to wherever they were going that night they stopped at a uh at a grocery store a bodega in the neighborhood in his neighborhood and there's all people all around the neighborhood and it's fourth of july and people are celebrating and and, and in the book, there's a guy who is sitting on the curb, the street, across the street from the, the bodega. And he sees Robbie pull up with his girlfriend in this, well, on this beautiful brand new my, uh, motorcycle. Now, let me tell you a little bit about him. He is a guy who, um, who had come from Brooklyn, comes from that neighborhood, and had a girlfriend and they went down a week or two before to Baltimore to a party. And the, <laughs> the people at the party told them to make sure that they brought some Coke with them. So not knowing where to buy Coke in Baltimore, they kind of wandered the street a little bit. They, they hit on some guy who was selling and it turns out it was an undercover cop. And he and the girlfriend get arrested and they're put into the Baltimore jail on a Friday afternoon friday evening friday evening they're not going to be arraigned until monday at the earliest and um and he is really upset she's really upset and when it comes to the arraignment the judge releases him or sets bail on both of them but only he has he has money and he only has enough to get himself out of jail and he has to leave his girlfriend down in baltimore Tells her, don't worry. Comes back to Brooklyn. He says, I'll raise the money and I'll come back and put your bail up and we'll we'll get you out. Right now, in the real story, that's exactly what happened. Yeah. This guy comes back to um, to Brooklyn and um, and he starts trying to raise money. But he's he's has no luck. No luck. He's nobody in the street that he wants to. He, he, he feels, well, you know what? Everybody's out in the street. I'll. I'll hold them up. I'll try to get money. But nobody's got any money. It's, it's a poor neighborhood. So that's not, he's not doing very well. And he, he's kind of at his wits end. He has nowhere to go. 
And uh, he's sitting on that curb thinking about what had happened or what was going on. And a guy comes up to him, a strange looking guy, sits down next to him. And our thief looks at him and says, who, who, who are you? He goes, ah, I live in, I'm in the area. My name is Jizz. And uh, he says, I, I, you wanna, I know what, you sh what you're looking for. He says, I know how I can help you points across the street to the cop on the motorcycle said you see that see that motorcycle it's worth a lot of money worth a lot of money you got a gun i know you do go rob the guy and he and he talked and he just nah, get the fuck out of here and jizz stays at him and he he, he he then kind of really gets to him and he says to himself fuck it i'm gonna go over and and do it now. The girlfriend, the cop's girlfriend, had gone into the bodega to buy whatever she was going to buy. So it was the cop alone on the bike, and he had taken his helmet off, and he's just sitting there. And the guy walks up to him and basically holds him up. Cop says to him, "Are you crazy? I'm a cop." He goes, "The guy says, I, I want the bike." He says, "I'm a cop." Next thing he knows, boom, 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 he shoots him, kills him. The bike tips over. Cop tips over, and the guy now the the bike is on. The cop is still straddling the bike, but mm -hmm. he's, he's he's under it. The bad guy comes over and tries to lift the bike up so he can take it and get it out of there, and he can't get it. He can't get it, and now people see what's going on, and um, and he can't. He he just can't get the bike up. But in the inter in 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 attempting to do that, he touches every part of the bike. Yeah. The bad guy in the book. City. As well as yeah. it, so he's got fingerprints. He's got people. Everybody out there can see what's going on. A girl, his, his his girlfriend comes out of the bodega. She's screaming. And our shooter bolts, takes off. The next day, now in the book, in the next day, <clears throat> the um, Michael gets called to the scene. And he gets called to the scene because they believe that they, meaning this, the secret group, that's um, uh, Romano, and, and the head of the group is a guy by the name of Caldwell, John Caldwell, who used to be the AG. They see what has, you know, they see that it's a cop. They uh, off the, He was off duty, but they know he's a cop. They see, they knew what his background was, that he yeah, came from the project. Beloved cop, yeah. They, yeah, they knew what that would create in the projects that it would be that people would they would be unrest. And they say, go out there. We think it's we think it's him. So Michael gets in his car, goes out there. And when he gets there, there's almost a riot going on. Just as they predicted that they would and the police are trying to hold back the the rioters. They had a call that the demonstrators and rioters, they had a call in. Um, uh, reinforcements to hold back the hold back the crowd, and um, and Michael meets the guy, the, the detective, who is in charge of the investigation, and uh, and he's worked with him before, so he knows him. I think I, think I call him Tony in the book. I, I don't remember. And in real life, his name is Tony. <laughs> so um, he says, "Tony, what do we got?" And he says, "We have this young police officer. This guy's a hero here." Everybody in this neighborhood loves this kid. He's been on the job. He could have gone to anywhere in the city. He chose to come back home. So he's really that kind of a, of a guy. And, and he's the kind of cop who um, off-duty worked with kids, did all kinds of things that really were, were made himself and engendered his, himself to the, to the neighborhood as far as his, his, um, the way that he approached things. And, and they loved him. So you can imagine what this crowd was, was how they, why they were outraged, but they were outraged for a reason different than what you might believe right now as I'm talking to you. Mm -hmm. There was a person in the crowd who Michael sees who's a rabble rouser, this person with these dread, red dreadlocks. And, and, and he is, he's, really kind of getting them all worked up and what's he telling them and why is he getting them worked up he's telling the crowd that it was white 
by the way, the, the police officer is an African-American kid. He's telling him that white police officers, yeah, undercover police officers, were shaking him down or were hassling him, and they shot him because he's a black cop. And everybody believed it because there's a lot of police brutality in that in that in that area. There was, there was. Mm-hmm. Of course, it was all total bullshit. And who does it turn out the dreadlock guy to be? You can guess, right? Yeah. Okay. So he approached, he says, listen to the detective, I'm going to go over and talk to these people and tell them that that's wrong. This is, that's not, this was a robbery. We got witnesses. Everything is, is nothing is like this, 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 this guy is telling you. So when he approaches the, um, the, the crowd expecting to confront the guy with the dreadlocks, who's really going crazy. And, and now there's a point where they have riot cops there because there really is going to be a, a problem. Michael looks around. He's gone. The guy in the dreads is gone. He's he's the kind of guy who I mean, I'm sorry, he's he's the the devil has has done his work. And as you see throughout the book, once that is done, he takes off. He's he's no longer around. You can't find them anymore. So Michael is able to to kind of he 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 points to he sees a couple of the citizens in the crowd who who he thinks will will listen to him and he he calls them aside and he talks to them and he tells them this is a robbery. This has nothing to do with cops. They the cops got here after the thing was over, you know, that kind of thing. And he and he settles things down. He settles things down. And um at the the end of the at the end of the afternoon or the morning, he speaks to the detective, and the detective tells him, says, "Listen, we're not through with the, with the investigation. We've got you know a witness telling us that it was a robbery, and the girlfriend tells us it was a robbery or attempted robbery, but we still have we still have things to do. We still got more to go." Okay. Michael says, you know, get back to me. Let me know when you uh, when you have something more and um, and I'll go back. Now, he goes back and he speaks to Romano. And I may not have this in the exact order, but when he tells him about the rabble rousing, he tells him about the the um, the, the, the 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 guy disappearing. Romano is is certain that it's it's the devil. And um, and he tells him it's your case. You stay with it. So what happens is he finds out that at the end of the day, at the end of the, the investigation, not the end, but it, at, at some point in the investigation, he finds out that they have, the cops have identified three, abs- three witnesses, absolute solid witnesses who say, I was right there. I saw the gun. I saw the guy pull the gun. I saw him ask the cop for the, for the motorcycle. I saw everything. And, and this is what the cops didn't learn until well after Michael had gone, they tell him that when the cop fell, the shooter grabbed the motorcycle and he grabbed it to try to lift it up. That, of course, gave the cops the incentive now to dust dust it mm-hmm. and come up with prints. So they have three, as the case goes on, and in the real life, this is what really kind of mind boggles, uh, boggled my mind later on. They had three eyewitnesses, okay? They still hadn't had an identification yet because they didn't know the name of that person. But the police were certain, and the detective tells me when I did the case and Michael in the book, don't worry. If these people saw him, he's from around here, we'll we'll come up with, with his name. So um, they... Do the, they put the prints in the prints they they take prints off the motorcycle. They are able to get valuable prints, which means that there's enough of the ridge um, uh, images yeah. from the fingers on the motorcycle through sweat, grease, whatever is on there. They got enough. So now they gotta they gotta identify the prints and and the way they do that is simple. They go back to police headquarters and they put it into a computer. And and if the prints, if his prints are in there or her prints are in there, whoever it is, they didn't know at that point. I'm sorry, they did know it was a man. Excuse me. 
um, then the identification will come up and they'll, they'll identify. So they are able to do that. So they have, and they come up with a name. They come up with a name. Now they have to find this guy, right? So they go around and they, they ultimately make a long story short. They find him. Okay. Days later, he, um, he turned, I forgot if he turned himself in or if he, if he is arrested. I don't, I don't remember. I think he turns himself in. in yeah, he book. turns himself in. Yeah. Turns himself in. And, um, and now it's a matter of, um, of trying to get him to give a statement because at this point, that would be the icing on the cake. Yeah. His prince came back on the motor, on the bike. Eyewitness one, eyewitness two, eyewitness three. By the way, lineups were held with our guy in three separate lineups. Eyewitness one picks him out. Eyewitness two picks him out. Eyewitness three picks him out. Okay. Fingerprints are unique to every human being. Mm -hmm. There are no two fingerprints alike. So it's him. Mm -hmm. Now we got three IDs. Okay. What's missing at this point? Confession. Gun. Oh, huh? the gun and a confession. Yeah, excuse me. I jumped ahead a little bit. He so they um, the cops talk to him, and he he does give a statement, and he tells him the story I started with about being in Baltimore and needing the money coming back to New York to try to get the money to get his girlfriend out. And that, um, he was, um, he couldn't, he was a terrible thief, I guess. He, he couldn't even get good enough good raw. I mean, he couldn't rob people with, and he had a gun. I mean, it was just a matter of, of this guy being, being, I guess a bad guy, yeah. bad at his job, as opposed to being a good guy. He's yeah. a bad guy, but he was not good at what he did. So, um, so he confesses and he gives it up and he's, you know, he tells him why he did it and that he did. He admits to trying to steal the guy, the cop. He didn't know he was a cop, of course, until the cop said to him, I'm, you know, I'm a police officer. And then he and he didn't make a difference. He shot, killed him anyway. And then he couldn't get the bike up and he admits it. He said, I touched it. I pulled it. I did. So it's a solid case, Tom. It's a solid case. In a book and in real life, this is basically a parallel. It's the same thing. The cops then um, then say to him, uh, we're going to call the DA to the to the precinct and you give it an on camera statement. He, he agrees. And that's when I get the call. Right. I um, it's my case. I go down. And I sit in a room with him and, and in the room is is myself, the bad guy, a detective, Tony, who was the guy in charge. And the stenographer and video and videographer, they were both, they were basically the same, same guy. So um, I sit him down, read him his rights, and he's as comfortable as you could possibly be at the table. He's got a soda in front of him. He's They let him smoke. So I made sure that he took sips of his soda Michael makes sure he took some smokes, you know, because later on, if you argue to the jury that it was coerced, yeah. you want to be able to say, if you're the prosecutor, this looks coerced. Look he's, at how comfortable this guy he's was. Fed, he's hydrated. Yeah. Yeah. He's not jumping around. He's not going crazy. Not panic so, attack. Yeah, exactly. So he's um, so I did all of that. And now. Gioka. In the book. Does something that Vecchione in real life did. And that was take a chance. Cause I, that's how I was as well in terms of being a prosecutor. I, I, I took chances and, and I felt that, you know, the chances were worth it. I wasn't reckless. I did what mm -hmm. I needed to do. And he says to him, so um, tell us, tell me where the gun is. He hesitates and he tells me. <laughs> And he tells Yoko where the gun is. Tells him exactly who gave it to him, where it is now. And they ask him, is it still there? And he goes, yeah, he still has it. So they go to his, it was his buddy's house. 
He went to, they went to his buddy's apartment. Guy lived either above or below his mother, the bad guy's mother. And after he shot the cop, he brought the gun to him and said, hide this for me. And the guy did it. You know, he's, just, he's a friend. He was going to do it. And he did it. But when the cops got there, he didn't hold it back. He gave it up. So now they had the gun. And I'm still at the precinct. And Gioka is still at the precinct. And the while I'm talking to him, they, um, they get back to the precinct with the murder weapon. Well, what turns out to be the murder weapon. Of course, we didn't know it yet because it hadn't been identified as, as such yet. And now it was, do I ask him this question? And if I, if it's the, if he gives me the wrong answer or the answer, that's not the truth. Cause I believed it was based on what he told me. I mean, it, how many guns are going to be in this guy's apartment when he told yeah. us where to go? Where it is. Know? Yeah. Yeah. So I took a chance and I said to him and Gioka does the same thing, shows it to him, make sure the camera sees it. And he says to him, do you recognize this? And gets the answer. That's the gun that I used that night and I shot the cop with. Bingo. Now we had a case, Tom, as strong a case as I had ever seen, to tell you the mm -hmm. truth. Three eyewitnesses, fingerprints, the murder weapon. The murder weapon identified on camera a confession and the guy who the killer gave the gun to after he did the killing. Can't get a better case than that, right? So um, I figured there's no way this guy's going to trial. Yeah. And so does Gioka. Gioka figures there's no way it's going to be a plea. But he hadn't figured in yet, Gioka hadn't figured in yet, how the devil was going to, to get involved because he knew that he was involved. He knew that he, he knew in his, in his heart of hearts that, that he was behind this and putting everything together finds out also, by the way, the bad guy talks about this guy jizz and talks about him basically instigating the crime and telling him and giving him the, you know, giving him the, the, the ideas to how to do it. And, um, and then put him together with the rabble rouser the next day, you know, Michael had a good, Gioka has a good feeling that this is the, this is the killer. I'm sorry that this is the devil behind this whole thing. So, um, but he doesn't take a plea. He goes to trial. And, um, and it's okay, you know, it's great. Joker says, I got enough. I'm going to, it'll be my first known win because I won before, even though that was the devil. But this one I know about, and, and this will be my, you know, the first time that, that I win. And he's, he's excited and he does the case, he does, and he does a great job. The three eyewitnesses testify without any problems. They, the, 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 the gun goes into evidence. The confession goes into evidence. The fingerprints go into evidence. Everything is, is, is terrific. The defendant has no defense. Now, you know, under the law, you can't hold that against them, but he doesn't say anything. He doesn't have any problem at all. And, um, and, and, <laughs> but I remember this as if it was yesterday. The jury takes, doesn't, you know, we, the, we do summations. Judge gives them the, the law. And um, they take, they're taking a long time with a verdict. Now, throughout the entire trial, the dead cops or the cop who's dead, who was killed, his, families to sit in a courtroom and in the book Gioka establishes a relationship with his mother and father and I think his brother and there they were all you know pleased this punch that uh you know the case went in well and you know they doesn't bring your child back but there is a measure of closure sure. if the person is responsible is held responsible and um I remember I had to to sit there with them and what was going on. And Gioka, you know, has to talk to them and they're they 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 still had faith. You know, they still had faith up until the the day that 
one of the worst days that I've ever had as a prosecutor come comes about. And same thing with Gioka. <clears throat> this really affected him. Unbeknownst to him, and I'll get to what happened that affected him. Unbeknownst to him, in the days the jury was deliberating, a court officer who had been assigned to the trial was out in front of the courthouse and just happened to notice two of the female jurors outside in front of the courthouse in this little park that's out in front talking to a woman um, who had who was pushing a baby carriage and um, I left one thing out that I have, I, I forgot, but I, I'll get to it. Um, pushing a baby carriage and they're chatting it up and talking and, you know, and the court officer kind of chalked it up to, Hey, you know, it's, this is downtown Brooklyn. A lot of people know each other. A lot of people come down here for shopping, go to court businesses and stuff. They, they know each other and they, they chatting it up and, um, and he watches and he watches and the, the conversation breaks up and, and the jurors are nodding and laughing and chatting, et cetera. And she, he stays where he's standing and, and the woman with the baby carriage put comes past him and pushes past. And that's when he notices he's facing, she's walking with her, the left side of her face facing the cop. And he notices this strange mark on the left side of her face. Now, for those of your readers, or soon you'll, if you read part one, you understand that essentially the mark on the left cheek is the mark of the devil. Mm -hmm. in, in the other book, uh, in the first story, there is a, there's someone with the mark. In this, there's someone with the mark. Jizz has the mark, which we later find out. The rabble rouser, I use another, in the book, I use another um, another way of identifying the devil, and that's with the red red dreadlocks in, in in certain situations. So he notices, but he doesn't give it any th any thought. I mean, so what? The woman has a mark on her face. So the jury deliberates, continues to deliberate. No verdict. Finally, they get a note from the jury. The judge does, and the note essentially is. Um, we're unable to reach a verdict. Judge says, go back. They go back. No luck. Days go by. No luck. Unable to reach a verdict. Judge has no choice at that point, and he, he declares a mistrial, a hung jury. Now, the defense is happy because there's no conviction. Michael Gioka and real Michael were unhappy beyond belief. I mean, how do you not win a case with this kind of evidence? I was beside myself, and so was Gioka. And I'll never forget this. The judge was equally upset. He turned, after he dismissed the jury, he turned to me and he said, when can you be ready to try this case again? I said, judge, tomorrow. And Gioka yeah, says yeah. the same thing. The, the prostitute, the, Defense attorney is like, oh, yeah, some time. The judge says two weeks. I think I said two weeks, right? Two weeks. Back here in two weeks, we're doing this, this case again. And only then, only after the trial is declared, a mistrial is declared, the hung jury, does the court officer ultimately tell Michael Gioka what he saw. Yeah. And that's after Michael had gone to the jury room to talk to the jurors to find out what went wrong, what's gone, what what happened here, because he thought that they were the kind of jurors who, you know, would 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 vote to convict, particularly with this kind of evidence. You know, it couldn't have been a racial thing because the witnesses were all African American. The, the deceased was African American. <coughs> Parents sitting in the audience. The defendants African American. It wasn't a, a racial thing. So. I couldn't understand. And and because in Brooklyn at the time, there were racial racial issues were a problem and you had to be, be wary of them when you were picking 
juries and and trying cases like this. The two, the jurors said to Gioka, those two, pointing to two women who sat even at that point away from the jurors in the corner, said they're not voting to convict this guy. They wouldn't listen to us. We tried, we tried, we tried, couldn't convince him, convince him. Only after that conversation, the court officer, by the way, who was outside on the street, was there as well. And he essentially calls Gioka. And he says, I didn't say anything to you because I didn't think anything of it. I didn't bring mm -hmm. it to the judge's attention because I didn't think anything of it. But I saw this woman outside and he describes the conversation and the way that they were chuckling, the way that they were chatting and nodding in the head, et cetera. And Michael says to him, did you see her? Did you get a good look at her? He says, I got a look at her as she passed me. And uh, but the only thing distinctive, Mr. Gioka, is I saw this big, like fucked up mark on the left side of her left side yeah. of her face. Next day or a couple of days later, Michael goes back into the courtroom. Of course, he can't tell anybody what the reason is. He just calls a jury tampering or jury in. The people were, uh, you know, trying to influence the jury and the judge has a, essentially has a hearing, talks to the court officer, the court officer tells him what he saw. And Gioka then does something that probably hadn't been done in in the book, I, I say it, and it's true, in Brooklyn, and I can't tell you, couldn't tell you how many years, he asked that the jury be sequestered, the next jury, meaning that they would not be able to go home after the trial was over, that they had to be kept together in a hotel and uh, brought to court by court officers every morning, escorted from court to, ho to the hotel every night. And only after there was a verdict or an another hung jury, if there was one, would they be able to then go home and live their lives. Now, Tom, I got to tell you, in real life, that would never happen. I mean, yeah. that those days are over. I mean, I, I, I've had a lot of sequestered juries, but once, um, Money became an issue with the courts, et cetera. It was costing too much. They decided to un to do to do away with that, and, and the jurors were sent home every night, admonished not to talk about the case. You know, told uh, you know you don't make up your minds, don't read anything in the newspapers, those kinds of things. Don't watch television. So I kind of brought that back in the book. I brought that that idea back as a way for Michael to combat the evil one. He couldn't get to them if they were guarded 24 hours and if they were, you know, 24 hours a day and, and they were together all the time and the judge went along with it. Judge bought it, said, yes, I'm going to sequester them. Of course, the defendant and the defense attorney went, went absolutely nuts. And um, <clears throat> so jury number two is picked. The case goes in as well as it did the first time. Maybe even better because the witnesses were <laughs> were ready for the cross examination, etc. You know, and uh, and Mrs. I had Mister uh, the the mother and father of the cop sitting right behind me in in the courtroom in Brooklyn, and I guess in other courtrooms too. The prosecutor is the closest one to the to the jury, table wise. So Gioka makes sure that the mother father. And his, I think it was his brother, sit right behind him in the first row of the courtroom, got permission to have them do that for the entire trial. So I'm sorry, second row, because the first row was for the press, second row. And they were there. And the jury, every time the jury would come in in the morning, Gioka made sure that the family was sitting there and they would see them. And during the course of the trial, it, one of them had to testify to uh, to the identification of the body. So they knew that this was a family of the defendant. And the case went in beautifully. And Gioka remembers that when they announced, this time, by the way, the jury came back in like a day and a half with a verdict. And when the judge asked the foreperson to stand, it was an African-American woman who had to, in the book, had to identify with the, the mother of the deceased. I mean, they were the same, around the same yeah. age. 
she had kids, he had kids, lose your, lose your, lose your son. Um, she had the verdict in her hand, piece of paper. She didn't need to read it. And when, when the clerk asked, how do you find, she turned, oh, she turned in the book, turned to the, to the mother and father of, of the, the cop, spit a big smile on her face and announced guilty. So that made everybody, oh, yeah. everybody was, was obviously the parents outside. Gioka gets yeah. hugged and thank you and et cetera. And, and everything settles in. Gioka is all happy. He goes back, has a drink. He, he meets, I, I'm not even sure if it, what he did. He talks to Romano. They may have gone out to dinner. They did. They did go out to dinner. And, um, and the next morning, Michael Gioka gets a call from Romano and says, did you turn on the TV or something of that nature? He turns on the television and there's a report on an all news station, local all news station about an event, an incident that happened the, the night before around the time. Well, let's say an hour or so after the jury verdict. What happened was the jury four person, this lady, her daughter's birthday was the next day. And the courthouse is situated in a section of Brooklyn that is a big commercial section with a lot of department stores and specialty stores and clothing stores and things of that nature. One of the biggest ones was Macy's. You probably have heard of, of Macy's department store. And yeah. the lady went to Macy's to buy her daughter a present, right? She walked back with the birthday present to the subway and got on the subway, got on to got down onto the subway platform. And as she was waiting for the train, as it was coming in, a person behind comes behind her with the big black mark on her left cheek and pushes her in front of the train and kills her. That's the way part two ends. And Gioka is beside himself and realizes that there's going to be a price to pay for each of these uh, for for taking on the devil. And there are there are other ways during the course of the the book that that happens. He goes, and, and most of the time, it's and then and and in the next case that we talk about, um, it's one of the main witnesses who who pays and. Um, Let's just say that the devil does not like to lose yeah. and he has to extract some kind of penalty. If he can't affect the case so that it doesn't get to the point of him losing, that's all well and good. That's great. But if he does lose, then there's a penalty that's extracted in each one of these situations that Michael has to concern himself with, Gioka. And he has to concern himself with it when it touches, he at, at one point it touches his family. And um, and and he he says at one point, and I'll tell you this, it may not be in this part, maybe later, but I'll say it <laughs> because it's worth repeating it later on. He, he No, I'm sorry. It was in the first part of the book when he's talking to Romano. Romano tells him, you know, what the plan is and what they're what what he's being asked to do. He says, well, why doesn't why wouldn't he just kill me? <laughs> why would he why would he he allow this to occur? And Romano's point is, Romano says to him, you're missing the point. He wants you and everyone to suffer. Yeah. He wants you to be humiliated and he will do it each and every. That's where he gets his jolly, so to speak. It's not, if he kills you or he kills somebody, yeah. you, that's it. It's done. But he wants to be able to come back at you again and come back at you again and come back at you again. And in the, in the, and, and while that's happening, he's destroying parts of Brooklyn and life in Brooklyn and the, you know, the peaceful, um, serene life that, that Brooklyn had become, has become, it's, 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 a, it's expensive to live in Brooklyn. And, um, and, and at one point until just recently, until after the pandemic crime rate was, it was as low as it could be low as you could think. But, a lot of wealthy people have moved in. A lot of a lot of people who are recent college graduates who've gotten jobs on Wall Street have moved into Brooklyn. Um, there's a lot of 
a lot of uh, a lot of clubs I've opened up. I mean, life has you know kind of can evolved in terms of Brooklyn, and and it's in a lot of ways even more popular nightlife wise than Manhattan is. So the point is that the devil wants to upset all of that, and that's why he's he's here. And the idea of killing the juror, I I think I write about it, or at least I leave the understanding that the smile when she announced yeah. guilty, that was the kiss of death. Yeah. That was, she had signed her own death warrant and, and that was it. And later in the, in the book, um, there are other ways that the devil gets back at him. And, um, and, and in, in book two, I'll give you a little bit of a preview. He actually does go after Michael. And um, so we'll, you'll see how that turns out at some point. So, um, it's uh, it was now. Let me just go, just tell you a little bit about my reaction when this happened in real life. Just a little bit. Sure. I know you got a little, you got to run, but I'll, I'll, I'll... Tommy, I, I have never been so affected by um, a, a verdict like this. It was, it quest, it made me question my ability. If I could not win a case where I had three eyewitnesses, fingerprints, the gun, a confession. And the person to whom the gun was brought after he killed this police officer, I said, you know, maybe I need to hang him up. I, yeah, I, I can't believe that I didn't win yeah. this case. Yeah, that's a gimme. Turned out that the real the real reason for the for the mistrial was was, was a pure racial reason. Yeah, pure we're, racial. We're not putting any more. We're not putting another brother in jail. Correct. Even though he killed a black guy. Correct. Correct. That's exactly what happened. So. Um, so anyway, that's um, that is part that is story number two in um, in in Fallen Angel and um, story number three. I'll give you a little preview. is is about involves a cop too, but it involves a cop in a different way. And um, and it uh, it 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 is a beginning of also an attack on um, is a, a kind of a religious attack in it too in terms of neighborhoods and stuff and then part four is is a pure religious attack that mm -hmm. you know so uh, that the devil instigates but in any event i don't want to get ahead you might not ask me back so if i tell oh, you shut everything, up. Gonna... Oh, shut <laughs> up. It's, um no this is i mean so, this is i didn't want to knock all this i mean obviously it's episode two i didn't want to knock it all out in one episode i'd rather flesh it out and really go into it because i mean ultimately these are real stories so i mean that that's what yeah. in itself they oh. are. They are. And that's why I got to tell you, tomorrow night, believe it or not, the night before I have to have the surgery, I'm going out to a to uh, I'm, I've been doing library uh, talks here okay. in, um, in 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 on Long Island. There's a, a group that sets up these uh, true crime, I guess, kind of confabs where you go out and people who are interested in true crime come out to listen to the speaker. And and I was recruited to. To do i've done four or five four of them already i've got one tomorrow and i've got another two coming up and and it'll probably be a couple more <laughs> but tomorrow's also a part advertisement and 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 push for for fallen angel we're gonna um gonna hopefully sell some books and uh yeah. and 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 yeah and and the other two people who are with me who are going to be speaking write write fiction so even though this is technically fiction i'm mean, not more than technically it is fiction but it is technically a true crime i'm going to be able to tell them that same way i've just told you about the the real crimes and, and how they're depicted in the book so it should be uh, fun and i'm going to make a note right now to text you tonight and we'll schedule the next one good mike schedule there we go because otherwise i will forget because I'm on a hamster wheel of these podcasts. They just fly in front of me and they fly behind me. And um, I'm sure. Yeah. Okay. Well, but, um, thanks again. Once again, thank you very much. And I of hope course. that uh, I hope that your you know your listeners and, and viewers like these stories. I think um, I kind of open up a little bit of the world that they're not uh, they're not into or don't know about. So um, absolutely. I mean, it's I, I think you give a peek into you know the world ain't nice and the there is fucked up shit you know for lack yeah. of a more formal way to say it i mean like it's not just like oh that's in syria like no it, it it's here you know and you do need a it's not it's not a cold view of the world to you know lock yeah. your door look over your shoulder like it's just smart and i mean above all else i think that's probably the value in it but um 
Mike, let's wrap this one up. Um, good luck on your library talks. Good luck on your surgery. I'll shoot you a text. We'll schedule the next one. And guys, please go into the description, buy the book. It's a fantastic book. It's a terrifying book. And uh, yeah, man, can't wait for the next one. Thank you, Tom. Mike, much love, brother. Guys, thanks for watching. Please go into the description, buy the book. Uh, go buy Crooked Brooklyn. Go buy Homicide is My Business. Luigi the Zip. If you're not ready for Satan, just go to Luigi. He's a little more lovable. And uh, yeah, till next time.